Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Jamie Schleck. Jamie aspires to be a servant leader committed to making everyone achieve more. As Chief Financial Officer and Chief Operating Officer of Community Solutions, he has helped the organization achieve the mission to create a lasting end to homelessness that leaves no one behind. Jamie is the founder and principal investor of Bayonet Capital, LLC, a private equity funder of entrepreneurial ventures. For nearly two decades, Jamie was president and CEO of JFC Technologies. At JFC, Jamie and his team played an instrumental role in the development of specialty materials used in military aerospace applications, including the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. Jamie was the 2007 recipient of the Richard T. Whitcomb Award from NASA for his contributions to the development of specialty material for military aerospace products. He successfully sold the business to become part of Sialoon Technologies, a publicly traded company on whose board he served for several more years. He has been a direct investor and or board member in numerous private equity transactions ranging across industries. Jamie is a former Army officer and is a graduate of the U.S. Army's Airborne, Air Assault, and Ranger Schools. He holds a BS degree from the United States Military Academy, an MBA from Columbia University, a master's in education from Rutgers University, and completed a one-year certificate course in managing innovation from Stanford University. Most importantly, Jamie is a father of four children and has been happily in love with his wife, Pamela, since they met in 1994. Jamie, welcome to CFO Weekly, and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be able to get a chance to talk to you a little bit about my organization and what we do and, and talk about CFO Matters. Yeah, so when we spoke about the topic for this show, we pretty much discussed too many great ideas to narrow it down to just one specific topic. So today we're going to be discussing your experience and some interesting concepts you've encountered along the way. And I'm looking forward to learning about some new ideas myself. So let's get started. Tell me about your career progression. How is it that you got to where you are today? It's been a great, great ride so far. I'm very blessed to have had the experiences that I had. I was originally entered the professional workforce as an army officer back in the early 90s. I had the opportunity to go to West Point and then to serve our great country as an officer in the army. Had some, met some wonderful people, made some great relationships, got some really great experience as a, as a young leader. And so that was where I started my professional career. In the mid-90s, I transitioned out of the Army into business. At the time, I felt like, you know, you got to remember the mid-90s, the world was so peaceful back then. We did not have, uh, I felt like my highest and best use of my time was maybe to go into business. And my family had a, had a business. My father needed my help. And so I transitioned out of the army at that time and I joined him in business. And so I ran that business for about 20 years. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience as well. And then 
upon selling the business, I moved into a nonprofit and I have been for the last six and a half years working to end homelessness with an organization called Community Solutions. Wow, that is quite um, a varied work experience that you've had. So are there any particular stories or moves that stand out in your mind as real turning points within your career? Yeah, there's been several. And I think there's a kind of a common theme in that there was this unique experience that I had in each one that took me back to a previous learning from my last experience. And let me tell you about that. So, you know, when I was in the Army, the opportunity to to lead soldiers and, and to train and to train for crisis management, to train for, you know, high, high stress decision making. And so um, in 1999, my family's business was inundated by floodwaters from Hurricane Floyd. And when I mean inundated, I mean, we lost everything. We lost our inventory. We lost equipment. We lost everything. And um, we didn't have insurance for any of this because we just weren't prepared. And it was really like game over. And I found myself thinking about how we can navigate our way through that crisis, going back to a construct that I learned in the Army called troop leading procedures, which is really just like a process by which you walk through a complex problem. You know, it begins with reconnaissance and understanding what's going on on, on the ground. It, it's about issuing a tentative plan. It's about it's about making that plan available to people, communicating that plan, and then walking it down through all the way to to the execution phase. And when everybody was losing their head at the time, I had this construct that enabled me to kind of think clearly. And we actually navigated our way through that crisis. We got back into business in a short amount of time. And thanks to the help of a lot of great customers and vendors and investors and and we managed to, to successfully get that business uh, back on track. And ultimately, we grew it. And we ended up making you know, highly specialized materials that went into drug products, went into aircraft. We have product that's flying on the Joint Strike Fighter today, which is a, which is a, um, a special, the F-35 aircraft that the Air Force and the Navy has and all of our, our allies have as well. And so I was very proud with, of that accomplishment, but it really came back to that earlier training that I didn't think I would necessarily have to use in business, and I got to use that in, in business. And so that, that was a pivotal moment for me. And um, I think another pivotal moment was 9-11, right? So yeah. um, following this uh, recovery out of business, you know, the world was back at war, something I never anticipated, obviously, when I left the military. And I found myself with this deep sense of regret, not that I wanted to go to war, but knowing that our country had trained me to be a leader in those situations in that time, that I was now on the sideline as a civilian. And so lo and behold, Uncle Sam had another plan because I was in the reserves and I got mobilized. And next thing you know, I was back in the army for a bonus year right after 9-11. And I think that experience help to underscore what I already knew was very important to me, which was love of country and support for all the things that we hold dear. 
and I was still very immersed in business at the time as well. There was no exiting the business that I was involved with at that point. I was a CEO and I was running it and there was just, I mean, I could manage to be away and, and deployed for a year, but I was, I'd had to come back to it. And so I returned to civilian life. I returned to running that business, but also with the sense of purpose that I felt like I wanted to get back into service of our country somehow, some way. You know, I, I was committed to growing the business and ultimately realizing a liquidity event. And I knew that when that happened, I would want to get back into service to the greater good at some point. And that's what brought me to Community Solutions. And there's another specific story about that, which I can talk about in, in a little bit. But that's, that's kind of the trajectory of my career and how I moved from kind of phase to phase in my professional career. So as a CEO, just out of curiosity, how did you manage to step away from a business for a year? So when I was mobilized, I was, well, number one, I had a fantastic team of people, right? So I had really good people that could execute. And I think, you know, CEOs are responsible for long range strategy, not necessarily day-to-day -day execution. So I had a team that was able to do the day-to-day and, you know, for a one-year period of time, it didn't require me. There were a few things that we missed out on, or there was a few things that I could look back at and say, if I had been, you know, there on a day-to-day -day basis, we might have handled that differently. But, you know, that's, that's just kind of like um, Monday morning quarterbacking certain things, you know. But the other thing is, I was not, I was in the Pentagon. I was not deployed. I was not overseas. And I was working the night shifts. I was basically manning the, what they call the crisis action team, which was the interface between what was going on in Afghanistan and the day-to-day. -day. And I was fielding sort of all of the inbound requests and tasks coming from the theater and dealing with figuring out how things got sort of parlayed out to the various different parts of the, of the Pentagon. And so bottom line is I was working at night and then during the day when I wasn't sleeping, I was able to also still get involved with customer engagement, doing some remote leadership, et cetera. And then I did a lot of Amtraks back and forth. My business was in New Jersey and I was in the Pentagon. So the Amtrak is, it's only a two and a half hour uh, train. So I, I would sleep on the train sometimes and just get home. <laughs> Sounds like it was a busy, it was a busy, it, it was a busy year. It was a busy year. And my kids, I had two kids at the time. There were two and four. And uh, we managed to also get pregnant with our third of what, what is now four at the time. So we, we, I made some time for other things too, obviously. And uh, we were um, blessed with uh, our son, Luke, who was born in 2002. Yeah, that's a great story. And you obviously like being busy with four kids. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's the best, it's the toughest job you'll ever love. And it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's what matters most of anything, of course. So tell me about your current organization. What, what is it that they do? Well, Community Solutions is a nonprofit which is focused on creating a lasting end to homelessness that leaves no one behind. And so what we do, you know, we're not doing the direct service to people experiencing homelessness, although most of our team has done that at some point in their career. What we're doing is we're working more at the systems level. If you've ever read the book Moneyball uh, by Michael Lewis, it kind of explains in a nice 
pithy way what we do. We moneyball homelessness. We're looking at the data behind people experiencing homelessness at a macro level and trying to develop strategies that are the ones that are the most impactful for ending homelessness at large scale. We work in 85 communities across the country. We've got 14 proof points where we've actually ended homelessness in some of those communities. And it's all based upon coaching those communities on a couple critical like undertakings, how they can basically you know, look at the, their data, look at analytics, use, facilita- use facilitation and human-centered design as a way to make people move through homelessness faster and ultimately prevent it. What a great cause and what an interesting concept to use data to end homelessness. Tell me about how you personally made the decision to make the switch from a for-profit organization to a nonprofit organization. So this is one of these kind of, I'm not a really super spiritual person, but if there was a, if there was a point where there was some kind of divine intervention in my path, it was related to this. So we, we grew my business, which was called JFC Technologies. We had a wonderful opportunity to merge with a publicly traded company. So we were able to monetize our earnings at a higher a multiple. And I was on the board, publicly traded company. I was supporting what was, you know, a fantastic growth plan. And, you know, I still had this nagging, this nagging part of my conscience, which was about trying to get back in service because that's where I was raised is, you know, in, at, you know, at West Point and duty on our country and, and the army and, and I really felt like the team had gotten to a point where uh, it was doing fine. It didn't necessarily need me on a day-to-day basis. And I was looking, I was yearning for that connection to that bigger, higher purpose. And I was actually going to a trade show in, of all places, Las Vegas. And I was headed to the airport, I was parking my car. And first person I met parking the car was the guy working at four o'clock in the morning parking cars. And he was, he was kind of commenting about how cold it was. And he said, yeah, I spent, you know, most of the last couple of years, you know, in a real hot environment. I said, oh, yeah, where was that? And he said, oh, I'm, you know, I've, I've been in Iraq. And, uh, and he said he was, he was a veteran. He was a returning soldier. He'd become a civilian recently. And he said, you know, I was kind of hoping there would be something more for me than just parking cars at 4 o'clock in the morning. And so I asked him what he did. I learned that he was an infantry squad leader, which means he had tremendous leadership capabilities. So long story short, I ended up hiring him into my former business. And he's now like a shift supervisor with a great job doing great things. But I thought to myself, like, there's, there, there are ways that I could connect to that community of veterans, people that I served as a servant leader that would be meaningful to me. But then even more importantly, I, I went to Las Vegas you know, we're kind of going from place to place. Uh, and I see somebody experiencing homelessness in Vegas with a sign that said, you know, veteran, please help. And he was disabled. And I got to talking to him. And I, of course, at the time, I was complete, you know, unknowing of that space. And, and I said, you know, I, I asked him like, like very specific details about his service. And I confirmed, you know, by his answers that he's definitely a veteran. You know, I knew that he like, you know, like, Veterans can't, can't BS other veterans. They, can, they, they have a way of talking to each other, and they, you can kind of know. And so when I flew home the rest of the way, I was just thinking, like, it's time for me to do something bigger. 
it's time for me to move on from this business that I love and the people that I loved in that business. It was time for me to do something, something different. And that's what, then I just kind of did some research on the space and I learned about the unique approach of community solutions and um, became a donor, became an advisor. And then I was ultimately offered the position of being the COO and CFO, uh, which I've been doing mostly now for the last six and a half years. Recently, we hired in somebody to be the COO, and I am uh, transitioning now to just being CFO and helping to kind of coach our COO to get up to speed. What a great story. It seems like you really found a calling in life. I don't think many people can say that they have. Well, let me tell you, I, th- this is another, as, as I was saying before, sometimes I have realizations in my current role that takes me back to my previous role. And I have had just exactly one of those, one of those realizations. I mean, working with people experiencing homelessness takes you to communities oftentimes of concentrated poverty, which then you then look at what are the driving causes of this epidemic? You know, there's systemic racism, there's just lack of economic opportunity, there's all these things. And I began to look back and realize just how vitally important it is for all the people that are slugging it away in corporate America, taking risks, making money, paying taxes, employing people, that that is actually the most important fundamental service we can give to our country. It was, it was I, I lost that realization when I was, you know, basically going to Vegas that one day, not realizing exactly how important that day-to-day also is. And so, you know, for those who may be listening to me and thinking like, oh, you know, you can move on to, you have to find some, some higher calling. My point is you got to look a little deeper at what you're doing every day. You know, there are people that work in your organizations. There are people that you're paying, you're paying taxes, you're helping other businesses, you're being a, you know, a great vendor or a great customer for somebody. And that really matters. That matters more than anything. You know, if there's no, if there's no for-profit, yeah. if there aren't people taking risks, making money, there's nothing else. There's no nonprofit. There's no military. There's no government. You know, the most important patriots in this country are the people that are basically humping it every day, making things work. Yeah, that's so true, and uh, an in, an interesting way to look at things. But yeah, I I agree. It's funny. It takes it takes a new experience for me to look back and figure out the old experience. Like just as I was, you know, dealing with that flood, it made me realize how important my crisis management leadership training was in the military. You know, and now you know working in nonprofit makes me realize how important my for profit work was. You know, so I think it's important to make sure that we all are kind of, you know, pulling in the same direction and, and realizing how important the, and vital the for-profit world is to the nonprofit world. Yeah, I guess that's become even more apparent in this last nine months, or I guess 11 months now. Absolutely. So given your experience with running companies, what were the greatest strengths that you think you were able to bring to the table for a a nonprofit? And conversely, what has working for a nonprofit taught you? So I think that one of the things that I brought to the nonprofit was my experience in for-profit and the ability to see what the other side was seen, like with, from the perspective of a donor or the perspective of a strategic partner and who was like profit driven. And like, so I've been able to translate a little bit in terms of the 
incentives on one side of, of the aisle or the other. So that's that's one thing that I brought. Of course, I brought some business experience with banking and operations and leadership and, and HR management systems that were helpful to the nonprofit. I mean, our nonprofit has grown significantly. Our, our staff has has uh, tripled and our annual budget has gone up by five. So, you know, it's been a great sort of growth trajectory and I've been able to, I've been able to support that. And um, so that's been something that I brought um, to the nonprofit. But the thing that I really, I wish that I had had the nonprofit experience before I went to for-profit because the nonprofit, I think the best nonprofits like Community Solutions we're very focused on our impact and we're very focused on, you know, not necessarily doing things, you know, basically getting, it's not just about just like providing services or trying to alleviate suffering. We're trying to actually end homelessness. So we're trying to make sure that everything that we do is toward an end goal of eradicating homelessness. And it's a different mindset. It isn't just about being, good enough. Sometimes there are things that we're doing has unintended consequences of just perpetuating a problem. And we're looking at community solutions looks at more of the interaction, the, the, the connective tissue between one activity and impact. And so um, like I learned about this discipline about theory of change and a driver diagram which was new to me moving into the, you know, from the for-profit world to the nonprofit world. I wish that I had had that experience in the for-profit world because I think so. I think I would have done a few things differently. And, you know, the, the idea of human-centered design, which is to design a system around the individual is something that has been monumentally important in our work at Community Solutions. It's also obviously important for for for-profit businesses, like the you know the 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 uh, high customer interaction businesses are really hip to human-centered design. Yeah, and those two things, the human-centered design and and driver diagram, are are super interesting to me. And we will get into those two topics in just a bit. But for now, the last time we spoke, we talked about the idea of leveling up. What exactly does this mean? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of an adaptation from the good to great, the Jim Collins concept, right? Which is like, what is it that you're the best in the world at that you are passionate about and just do that one thing. And so when I look at nonprofits like Community Solutions, there's a whole bunch of other things that are not core to the business that you can basically outsource and just try to be as lightweight, impactful as possible. And so, you know, we looked at things like our day-to-day -day operations of opening mail and cutting checks and dealing with vendors and, and uh, answering phones and, and, and technology reimbursement for, you know, people's personal technology and all with a mindset to say, none of that stuff is core. What's really core for us is being able to interact with communities and teach them, you know, our unique problem-solving techniques. So anything that's not that is subject to be outsourced and basically, you know, optimized. And so, you know, you may, you know, we, we, we have this concept of like, like we called it the ninja ethos, which was, you know, the operating team working behind the scenes like ninjas. You, you didn't necessarily knew that they were there, but you felt safe because they always picked up the ball for you. 
And so that was what we, we, we focused on. We now completely remotely, when, when COVID hit, we were already working remotely. We had no problems. We didn't skip a beat with uh, COVID. We went to, you know, completely electronic accounting like two years ago. And, you know, all of our checks, you know, we never print checks and cut, you know, put, put checks in the mail and everything's done with, you know, electronic uh, interface and, and we're utilizing all those types of best practices. Our accounting is mostly outsourced. You know, I'm a CFO kind of in name only. My experience is more about managerial accounting. I have an accounting firm that just basically does all of our journal entries, all of our kind of like direct input into our accounting system and they support us that way. So for those companies or people out there looking to level up, what advice would you have for those people? I think you have to really interrogate every internal operation you have and say, is it core to the business and can it be outsourced? And if it can be outsourced, then you should really look to do that because anything else is just detracting from your effectiveness as a, as a nonprofit. And so one of my teammates uh, who basically was the, the real person that executed on all these things, you know, she has now become her own outsourced consultant, helping nonprofits do exactly that. And so basically you can really have a lightweight internal operation that is just as effective as one that's, you know, laden with um, a bunch of FTEs. So, and we touched on this topic a bit, uh, a human-centered design, which I think is fascinating. And I don't know why every company isn't doing something like this. First of all, what is it? And how are you guys putting this idea into practice? Well, you know, this is the, one, of the, one of the really impressive things about community solutions. It, you know, our CEO, Roseanne Haggerty, and our leadership team, you know, led by Beth Sandor, Jake McGuire, um, you know, Dave Foster and, and others, they'll, they'll always look outside to where things are that are happening that are best practices. Human-centered design is, you know, the best example of it might be like Disney World, right? So they're looking at what is the experience of somebody going to Disney World and how do we make that experience extraordinary? How do we make sure that everything around that experience is something that is like, that that legends are made of and then how do you build how do you build the systems around that and so we took that same concept or you know community solutions took the same concept and said what about somebody experiencing homelessness when you show up and you are basically you know at your wits end is it going to be helpful if you have to fill out 16 different forms with all of it 90 percent the same information you know is it helpful for you to have to try to you know, navigate some complex phone system with a bunch of prompts and, you know, kind of moving you around from case manager to case manager. And what happens if you, you know, if something shuts down at say, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, but you need to get into the shelter and it's a bus ride across town, but you don't have money for a cab fare or for, for a bus, you know, how do you basically think about all the systems and almost treat it like a concierge model? You know, if you are somebody that is experiencing homelessness in this community, we're going to give you concierge services to get you back into a stably housed situation as fast as possible. And so, you know, there's a roadmap that we had, which showed it looked like a game of shoots and ladders. Like how would we take somebody from experiencing homelessness 
to getting stably housed. And sometimes it would take like a hundred days and there would be like all these points along the path where you would like, you know, go back to the previous block because you didn't do X, Y, or Z or go here, or go there. It's this zigzag kind of navigation. And one of the things that we did was we brought all the community members around that were service providers in this maze. And we said, how do we streamline this around the individual to get them from point A to point B? And you know, we were able to coach communities in reducing that time, you know, by like, you know, moving from like 100 days to like under 10 days because of the way, that, and those 10 days would be in a shelter, basically, which is, you know, the idea of shelters is not that those are a, those are not a, that's not a viable housing situation. Those are temporary things and you just move people through them. And um, so the other kind of thing that we would do is look at like the shelters themselves and say, these cannot be designed for long-term stays. We cannot have a system to have people living in shelters for like months on end. And how do we basically move people through those systems to get them into a, a more stable housing situation? So just out of curiosity, what is it that you guys do to get them out of the shelters and into more permanent living situations? Well, obviously, we're not doing that, but the, the, we're teaching communities how to do that. But the logical thing would be like landlord engagement. Like, how is it that we work with landlords to make sure that they are open to and accepting of people that were in these situations? How do we optimize for voucher systems? You know, how do we engage with the VA if we're dealing with a veteran experiencing homelessness or Section 8? Or how do we leverage the community assets to basically get people, you know, through shelters quickly into some type of a supportive housing or subsidized housing situation? So it's, it's teaching communities to kind of like leverage all those things. But the real holy grail to this system, as I have learned, is to not treat people like they are just numbers in a system. One of the really innovative, this is not that innovative, but it was the most impactful thing that we brought to this, to this sector was the concept of having a by name list. So these weren't just like random, you know, clients. This was like somebody that had a name. And by affixing a name to that person's case file and making, making the community look at it by name, that alone just changes the dynamic and, this, and the urgency through which people deal with case management. But then moving from the by name list, you can imagine homelessness is a dynamic situation. You've got people flowing into homelessness and flowing out of homelessness. And they flow out because maybe they get stably housed on their own. Maybe they move away. Maybe they reunite with their family. Understanding the dynamics of the outflow is just as important as understanding the dynamics of the inflow. How many people are returning to homelessness that were previously homeless? How many people are homeless for the first time? Are they coming in from the criminal justice system? Are they coming in because of domestic violence? Are they coming in because of the foster care system? And then how do you track back into those inflow vectors and create a, create a, a strategy that's going to prevent somebody from becoming homeless. That's the kind of work that we do with communities is that we help them to kind of like process map the homelessness uh, process and then create these strategies using human centered design and data and quality improvement and facilitation to bring people all around the table. And then we have this collective approach and our communities, you know, they house people like 300% faster than communities that are not in our cohort. And as I mentioned, we've got, you know, 14 communities and, and soon to be, we've got another 
another 11 or so that are right on the cusp of ending homelessness. And we're going to see this happening you know, time and time again, where communities that have adopted these strategies are actually get, they're able to get to a point where they have zero homelessness in their community. And let me just clarify too, that zero homelessness does not mean no one will ever be homeless. What it means is that your current caseload of people experiencing homelessness is equal to your demonstrated ability to house them in the next month. Because it's a dynamic system, you got people flowing in and flowing out. But if you reach that stasis where inflow and outflow are equal and you reduce the number of people that are in the system to the demonstrated amount for the, for the next month, then you've gotten to what we call functional zero. Yeah, that's amazing because I know homelessness seems like such a, you know, such a huge mountain to conquer. It's been done. There's communities across the country, Riverside, California, Bergen County, New Jersey, you know, Montgomery um, in, in Maryland, Montgomery County. And, and uh, you know, the, if you go to our website, community.solutions, you get a real live time, a real live map of all the communities and where they stand, who's ended homelessness, who's, who's demonstrating month over month reductions. We use, we're partnered with uh, Tableau Foundation, who helps us with the data infrastructure. And we have like a sort of a live interactive uh, tool for helping communities really um, visualize how they're ending homelessness. Yeah, and I'm sure that being homeless, I don't, I'm not sure that there's anything that dehumanizes a person or makes them feel less human than not having a place to, to call home or, or shelter over their heads. So it's interesting to me that you know, it was so impactful when you put a name to the case number Yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll also say that what we, what you and I may think homelessness is, you know, like what we see, like it's visible to us, it's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, there's a, there's an entire sort of, you know, underpinning of the, the, below the water surface are people that are perilously housed that are trying to get, or they're couch surfing and they're trying to sort of navigate through. And, you know, we're, we are trying to get to, a world where our systems are being able to rea be reactive to the entire iceberg, not just what we see on the surface. So we talked about the concept of a driver diagram a little bit ago. Can you talk a little bit about this concept and how it works and how it can help improve quality? Sure. So when I was in business, I used something called management by objective, which is, I think, very typical. You've got your high level goals and then you've got your supporting goals that you think are connected to those goals. And so you basically, you know, manage your team. They have projects and they have programs that support these management by objectives. So a driver diagram is essentially management by objectives, but it really interrogates the relationship more of those supporting objectives. So an example from business might be like, I want to improve my profitability. Right? And so people might think, well, if I improve my the way to improve my profitability is I've got to get more sales. And how do I get more sales? I've got to get more shots on goal with customers. I got to improve my advertising spend. I got to do X, Y, and Z, yada, yada, yada. Right. So without really looking at the relationship between those, spe those specific subordinate objectives, we just go to work and we execute. A driver diagram looks more at which of those things moves the needle more. 
And how is it that, you know, we, you may not want to improve advertising spend. It might be that you want to just raise price, or it might be that you want to just have a different set of product offerings to your customers. And so it's going to more closely interrogate those types of relationships. And so one of the things that I wish I had had the knowledge of in for-profit business was this idea of a driver diagram and how to break things down, complex problems into, you know, relationships like that, secondary drivers and measurements. Yeah, I mean, that's a new concept to, to me too. And uh, I, I've looked it up a little bit and enjoyed learning about it. But uh, yeah, it seems like it can be a super helpful tool for improving overall quality and profit and anything yeah. else that needs improving. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. That's absolutely right. And, you know, we, again, you know, big credit to community solutions and being thoughtful about how do you pull from other sectors, you know, Years ago, we looked at the healthcare sector and we looked at something called the 100,000 Lives Campaign, which was pioneered by the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And they were looking at the incredible cost to the healthcare system of people who, who die due to mistakes made in the healthcare system and how can they actually improve the reduction of those mistakes. And they created this basically, it was a driver diagram that broke things out to how do we improve healthcare system? And it, it's much more common to see the driver diagram in a healthcare system. But what our team did was we said, that is, that is an idea that we now want to port over into the homelessness sector, which is, you know, in the past, been dealing with each of these little communities is like their own vacuum. There's no necessarily they're not cross-pollinating best practices. And you think about homelessness, it's a, it's a national epidemic, but it's always dealt with at the local level. You know, so you, know, you, you don't necessarily have a, a process by which somebody from Charlotte can share best practices with someone from Denver, even though those two communities might be very similar in terms of the size and the housing situation. You know, and, and so we become that we become that, that conduit for communication between, and, and we are able to leverage best practices across the country so that people that are working in our, in our cohort can benefit from the great learning that other people have had. So we've covered a lot of ground today. And for people who are interested in learning more about these ideas and concepts, are there any sources you can recommend? Well, I would start, first of all, with our website, Community Solutions, so uh, www.community.solutions, and you can learn more about what we're doing and how it is and the success that we're having in ending homelessness. The other place I would suggest, I mentioned that my colleague kind of went out on her own to create her own project around uh, helping nonprofits be super efficient, and that's called Pantala Strategies. Pantala Dragonfly is a dragonfly that can go from continent to continent without having to land. So the idea is that how do you create a lightweight, efficient, and effective organization? And so you can get more information there at pentalastrategies.com. How do you spell Pentala? It's P-A-N-T-A-L-A, Pentala Strategies. Okay, thank you. And so that's like, a, like, like the dragonfly. So, Jamie, thank you so much for joining me today. I've loved hearing about your experience and the great things that Community Solutions is doing. It sounds like you guys are really making the world a better place. Thank you. It's an honor to be here and an honor to have the opportunity to talk about the great work of Community Solutions. Thank you. 
So to all of our listeners, I hope you'll tune in next week. And until then, take care of yourselves. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personiv.com. Thanks for listening.